Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart. And as you can see, our guest today is Michael Bird, who is the academic dean and lecturer in New Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He is the author and editor of more than 30 books, including What Christians Ought to Believe, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible, and Evangelical Theology. He's also the author of a new book titled Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular Government. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Michael, thanks for joining us. Uh, Doug, thank you for having me. Greetings to all your listeners from the city of Melbourne grad, as I prefer to call it. I imagine my sentiments will resonate with many of your libertarian-inclined listeners. Yeah, I think so. And so to that end, let's get into this a little bit. The origin story of this book is... How long ago did you set out to write this? It's very timely in a number of ways. And my guess is that because you, you know, you probably wrote it a few years ago, or maybe you wrote it yeah. a few months prior to publishing, for all I know, but it's very timely. So, you know, the Lord was probably guiding your thoughts and process on what was next for you. So what's the background? How did this get started as a project? Yeah, well, I started writing it in about 2016 because we were facing some big issues about marriage equality law. Australia passed marriage equality uh, you know, or same-sex you know, mm-hmm. marriages in our parliament. But that was after a national plebiscite where we basically did one big postal vote uh, where everyone in the country could vote on whether they wanted same-sex marriage and it passed by like 59% to 41%. So by a very significant majority in the, in the government, I think rightly legislated it because that seems to be the will of the general populace. Uh, but then there's a whole bunch of issues about, well, what's this going to mean for like religious communities, Jews, Christians, Muslims that don't believe in same-sex marriage. And there's a whole bunch of debates. And it was a very acrimonious debate that took place. You know, there, there was incidences of uh, homophobic violence, but also churches being vandalized along the way as well. So it was a really sort of uh, dark time, if you like, uh, in sort of treatments of religion by certain sectors of society. Mm-hmm. And you also have a very progressive government in the state level in Victoria. In fact, it, the Victorian government is so progressive, it makes Massachusetts look like Alabama in comparison, to be perfectly honest. And in the name of equality, they wanted to stop discrimination against LGBT students at religious schools, at Christian mm. schools, which, you know, at one level, I think is, you know, quite fine and fair. You don't want to have punitive actions against sexual minorities in the name of religion. But they also wanted to affect the hiring policies of religious schools. And in certain parts of the country, they've been arguing that a Christian school should not be able to make being Christian part of the qualification for a job unless it's absolutely intrinsic to that position. So, you know, what's Christian about being a French teacher? You know, what's religious about maths? And in some places in Australia, they've argued that the only position in a Christian school that can have a religious qualification for the position is the school chaplain. So you can't, in some places, you can't even uh, insist that the principal of the school be Christian or a Muslim school or a Jewish school. Mm. Now, it varies between state to state, but these are the kind of debates that are going on and they're trying to balance allowing religious schools to maintain their religious identity and integrity 
but also wanting to have an open and inclusive policy, even more so since even our religious schools do receive a little bit of government and public funding. So we do have a kind of complex relationship between religious communities and the government and wider society. And at one level, it's a different way of trying to balance, you know, like I said, religious identity with the general ethic of inclusiveness. But in some cases, it does seem to require compromising on the ability of religious schools to hire and fire according to their religious values. So it's kind of debates like that have been going on. We've had huge discussions about, you know, should we have a a, a religious discrimination bill? There was one proposed in our parliament, but it got defeated. And so you've got stuff like that going on in Australia, which kind of mirrors things that you also find in the United States, very similar debates going on there. So I wrote this book during that time with those debates going on in Australia, largely pitting LGBT communities against religious communities. But around the same time, uh, where I was expecting a big sort of secular boogeyman to um, come on the scene, uh, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, which clearly changed the texture of the political context of the United States, certainly had big judiciary applications as well. And I think we're seeing that not just in the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but also a whole bunch of other decisions related to church and state relationship, largely driven by Trump appointees. Yeah, right. Uh, so that the, the texture of it, and basically what I've seen, there is two, de- in, in terms of having a healthy society where you can have a balancing of religious freedom and keeping government out of religion, you've got on the one hand, the danger of a very predatory and pernicious militant secularism on the one hand, But there's also the danger that people want protection from that by going to a kind of a political messiah, a sort of a white Christian nationalism is treated as the main defense against a sort of militant secularism. And I want to say both are bad options. A militant secularism is a bad thing, but by the same token, trusting yourself to a political messiah with, you know, more libertarian or even, you know, conservative tendencies, I don't think is the solution. What we need to help in these various conflicts you know, between, you know, church-state relations, LGBT rights and religious identities. What we need, I think, is a holistic and well-rounded secularism, which means we're not going to live in a theocracy, but government's not going to tell you how to do your religion either. So that's roughly what the book is about, making the case for a, a good, generous secularism that I think will advance the rights of all communities and defend people of all faiths and none. So one thing that really helped me out in understanding, you know, the political situation that you've elaborated in your book is my understanding of secularism. You know, I grew up in a pretty conservative home. And so there was this idea that there's the sacred things and then there's the secular things. We listen to Christian music or we listen to secular music. And so I can imagine we have some audience members who hear you say that what we need is a a case for a secular government. They're like, wait, what? No, we need a government that, you know, values religious liberty or values religion in some capacity, which is actually something you say in the book. So what is it that many Christians tend to misunderstand about a non-militant, which we'll get to the militant in a few minutes. What do Christians sort of misunderstand about non-militant secularism and what, what actually is it? And there's sort of a surprising truth about where it came from. Yeah, it is. Well, it basically, secularism really comes out of Europe to deal with religious differences. So, okay, you want to be a Christian country. Okay, you want a Christian ruler with Christian values. Fine. We're going to appoint an Episcopalian as your president and anyone who doesn't worship according to the Episcopalian model is going to be imprisoned. You know, we will forcibly baptize all your babies. We will take away 
your hymnals, replace them with the Book of Common Prayer, and that will be the only form of Christian worship that you're allowed. And it will be Christian. It will be Anglican. You'll be saying prayers, thanking God for the Queen of England. You'll be saying also, yeah, we'll, we'll make it a Christian country, but you've got a problem, which Christian? Yeah, it, it, there's a few different flavors. You know, do Presbyterians want to be forced to worship like Methodists? Do Methodists want to be forced to become Pentecostal? So secularism was saying, look, every group can worship in their own way, okay? The government is not going to regulate how you do your religion. And that means you can not just have different Christian dominations, you can have different religions. You can have Jews doing their own thing. You can have Muslims. You can have a land of all faith and none. So secularism is basically where you say, look, we're not going to replace the president with a pope, Dalai Lama, chief rabbi or ayatollah. We're not going to have a theocracy or, or even a hierocracy ruled by priests. But also, we're not going to allow government to tell you how to pray, what sermons to preach, what your holy books are, who is or is not qualified to be a leader in your church. We're not going to you know, accredit your ministers about who's allowed to do things. We're not going to tell you which areas of life religion is allowed to matter in. When you view secularism that way, it is your friend. Secularism is your bodyguard stopping government getting involved in your religious affairs. So that's why I think secularism is a good thing. But as I've, I do hint at, there are militant secularisms that want to basically reduce and compartmentalize religion, okay? Or some people want to say religion is nothing more than a right to discriminate or religion is a bad thing that we need to keep behind closed doors or you have religious freedom, but it only applies to the pulpit or something like that. So there are a few bad versions of secularism, but yeah. on the whole, secularism is a good thing. It emerged in a Christian context, in Christian societies, as a way of enabling us to live with religious differences. Would you say that secularism was invented by Christians? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. I would differentiate something. I would say religious tolerance you can find in different cultures. I mean, the Mongols, for all of their, you know, brutality and their violent, incredibly violent conquests, they practice religious tolerance. But in terms of a political settlement that says, okay, we're going to have politics over here and we're going to have religion over there. Yes, we can have some levels of cooperation. You know, the government will fund your soup kitchen because you're doing a great job or we'll have chaplains in the military or something like that. But generally, we've said, look, there's going to be no religious test for public office and no religious exclusion for public office. We're not going to have a state religion, and the state's not going to regulate your religion. Sort of like there's no partiality. That's ideal. Now, that's the ideal. In practice, it hasn't always been that way. Uh, certainly in Australia, yeah. everyone was equal, but Anglicans were a little bit more equal than others. Um, as things turned out. And same in America, all religions are equal, but I'm pretty sure Christians tended always to get a, a slightly better deal than, than the uh, Zoroastrians you know, in your ranks or anything like that. Yeah, but th right. th it was, it, it, it emerged, you know, after the various wars between Protestants and Catholics in Europe, people said, look, this can't go on. You can't have people going around assassinating politicians for their Catholics or kind of, you know, trying to burn down schools because they're Protestant. You know, this just can't go on. So let's make a rule. Uh, the king does not dictate the religion of his subjects. The subjects can be whatever they want to be. And, you know, we'll just try to get along with each other as best we can. So I want to talk a little bit more about this militant secularism because it seems to me that that is, and maybe you disagree, but it seems like that is the growing threat that's happening right now, at least in the United States, 
with people who, and now that we're recording after the Dobbs decision about Roe v. Wade, I do have a question about that here in a bit because there's a reaction to it that seems a little overblown. But you have a lot of people who they think that religious liberty is being sort of infiltrated into the political system by Donald Trump, you know, and all the Catholics that he, you know, appointed as justices and things like that. And so they feel like they have to fight back more militantly against this sort of religious ethos. And the issue that I have with this is like, you have to have some sort of moral values. And like, just simply because it comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview or ethic or, or however you want to put it, doesn't mean that it's like inherently bad. I mean, there's moral justifications that atheists make mm. uh, for the same outcomes that you and I would make to treat people, you know, fairly and equally. And so anyway, the militant secularism, do you feel like that is one of the most threatening aspects of political discourse right now? Or maybe it's from the other side? In America, I think you do have a dual threat. I do think there is a threat from what I would call white Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. And some of the things I hear American politicians saying, uh, particularly I saw one, one lady in America saying basically, you know, that it was necessary to kill the indigenous population so America could become a Christian country. I mean, I find that just morally Ouch. appalling. Yeah. I mean, so stuff, I and I regard that as a real, a real threat to the Christian texture of America. Uh, that said, I do. There, there is a, a progressive threat, and probably the best example of this was there is a body called something to the effect of the United States Council on Civil Rights, which is a, a government office, and they produced a report called Peaceful Coexistence. And basically, they said religious liberty is nothing more than a right to discriminate against minorities. Therefore, we need to reduce mm -hmm. the footprint yeah, right. of religious freedom. And that, I mean, there was one guy speaking against it, which was a, uh, a George W. Bush appointee called Peter Cassano. He put forth a very good case why this is a really bad idea to define religious freedom in that way. And the way that governments, certainly state governments in places like California, are trying to balance LGBT inclusion with religious institutions that is becoming complex and getting a little ugly. And you can see the encroachment of people trying to force not just Christian, but even Muslim organizations and schools and colleges to a, a, adopt a particular line on issues that they are clearly not comfortable with. That's where the conflict is happening. But I, I wouldn't say, I, well, I think white Christian nationalism and a militant sectorism are both threats to a fair yeah. and um, generally Christian settlement in the United States. Yeah, I think maybe I feel like the threat from the left or the militant secularists is more close at hand. Maybe that's just because of my you know particular interest and, and way of focusing on things. It also does feel like maybe what I'm about to say is sort of testifies to what you're saying is that the backlash to the decade of Obama and a lot of you know progressive values being thrown out there to us in the media. Trump was a backlash toward that. And so there is the, you know, the white Christian nationalist. So that undoubtedly. So it, it certainly goes that way. It does seem to me that what you see from militant secularism isn't really secularism. It's a new type of religion. You know, so we, we can call undoubtedly. it we can call it wokeism. We can call, I think you even use the word, I think, civic totalism, where the state sort of becomes the totalizing force of enforcing morality, or maybe you could put it the way you put it in the book. But it seems to me that that's where the threat is because they're the ones who want to actually sort of take over and have power. Whereas, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but like white Christian nationalists 
it seems to me that they just want to worship as they want and they want to sort of have laws that they think reflect Judeo-Christian values. I actually haven't dove into that too much, so maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's sort of where I have delineated in my mind that the threat is a little bit more on the left than it is on the right, even though it seems like you're making the case that it's about equal. Well, let, let me make two points there. First of all, it's very important we distinguish religious liberty from Christian hegemony. Just because Christians are no longer the default setting in the political discourse or the main religion, that is not the same as religious liberty. And I think a lot of people, in particularly the United States, confuse the two. They think religious liberty means the hegemony of a particular religion. And if that religion is somehow being diminished, it's because of the mean secularists yeah. or you know, too much immigration of the wrong type of people. And let me tell you, this is, I think, a crucial point for your listeners. There is a difference between American and global evangelicalism. And this is something I learned from Canadian uh, John Stackhouse, who spent a lot of time in, in America. He was like, you know, trained in, in Chicago. And that this is so true. American evangelicals are the only ones who think that they have a divine right to rule the country. As <laughs> other words, American evangelicals assume they should be in charge, that it is, it is, the, it is the normal state for American evangelical to be in the White House and all the government. And, 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 you know, they should be in charge and everyone else is tolerated either welcomely or begrudgingly. I guarantee you Christians in India don't say India is a Christian country and all these Hindus have taken it away from us. Christians in India don't say that. Christians in, in certain parts of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, are just very happy that the government doesn't come down and burn down their churches. But American evangelicals do seem to have this expectation like we're supposed to be in charge and we're not. And that is a travesty. So that is one way in which American evangelicalism is different to, I think, evangelicalism in the rest yeah. of the world. Okay. But then building on your second point, I do think that progressive politics is becoming a type of quasi-religion. And, you know, that's becoming more and more apparent to me every day. And I think you see a lot of religious energy that's leaving the mainline churches, which is decreasing, is then being applied to political activism. So American, I thought this is probably true globally, but the political divides are becoming more like religious sectarian divides. I mean, the difference between Democrat and Republican is becoming increasingly like Protestant versus Catholic or Sunni versus Shia. And progressive has now developed its own sort of, you know, religious orthodox. It's got its own sacred text. You could say it's Michel Foucault is the Old Testament. Judith Butler is the New Testament or something like that. Ibram X. Kendi is the Apostle Paul. Yeah, they have their own magisterium, which is the New York Times. They have yeah. their own prophets like AOC. They have their own rituals, LGBT parades or all sorts of things. They have their own doctrines, which are like, you know, a woman is anything you want it to be. I mean, so there is this sort of idea, and, and that becomes dangerous on both sides because when people say truth is tribal, so truth is what helps the progressive cause or truth is what helps the conservative or libertarian cause, and we're unable to talk each other because we're only committed to the tribe rather than to the truth. And even worse, religion just becomes something to provide religious capital to the politics. And that is what really concerns me. I tend to think uh, someone who is well-read in their scriptures and well-read in their culture should never be able to identify wholly with the political left or the political right. I tend to think uh, Christians who are, I think are soaked in the values of scripture 
are going to find themselves as a little feeling out of sorts on both the political left and the political right. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I do not fit into the U, yeah. into the U.S. dichotomy. You know, I've got some very strong pro-life views about, you know, restrictive view of abortion, but I'm also very keen on refugees, you know, helping people in need. I'm very opposed to the death penalty, very opposed to euthanasia. Now, that sort of pro-life view does not map onto the American political divide um, as it goes. So, I tend to think we, it, it we would should. only it would only not map onto it if you're only dealing with red and blue, but you add the purple libertarian, and you're actually sort of like everything you just said sort of fits in with where I am at least. Maybe I'm a closet libertarian, and I did not know it. <laughs> and uh, maybe I need to have a a libertarian reveal party. Do you guys do them libertarian reveal parties? <laughs> you might be our first. <laughs> okay, we'll see. We should do that. We'll, a libertarian reveal party. I'll have no idea what I should wear. Do I need to take fashion advice from um, from certain do not politicians? Take, well, I don't, don't know. take fashion advice from previous libertarian conferences. Let's just go with that for now. Okay, that's, well, de- that's an inside joke for a lot of my listeners, but yeah. Definitely don't do cannabis, though. I do not do cannabis. That's, no that's cannabis. Okay. Neither do I. Uh, yeah, well, I've got a book that answers all the remaining questions you might have about libertarianism. I'll send it to you. That we wrote, that LCI, uh, the team at LCI wrote, that you can have. So everything you just described is almost... I wouldn't say it's depressing, but it, it puts me in the direction of weightiness. Like there's this big sigh and it's like, how do we move forward when you've got white nationalists on the right of me and woke religion on the left of me? And it's like, how do you even convince anybody that a benign secularism is a wholesome way forward? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. You know, politically... I don't know whether this is, sounds arrogant or not, but there are days where I feel like the one sane guy in the asylum dealing with, you know, various sort of people who live in two different realities. So how do you convince people? Well, one thing, you just have to explain what secularism is. And I think for a start, you've got to tell people that secularism is not one thing. It's 20 different things. The secularism of France, and France is a very secular country, is different to the secularism of Turkey. I mean, the Turkish is a, is a Muslim country, but it was founded to be explicitly secular. You know, the United Kingdom is a secular country. That said, the Queen is the official head of the Church of England, and the Queen, through the office of the Prime Minister, appoints bishops in the Church of England, and yet it's still a secular country. And then you've got something like Australia, which is very much a halfway house between Australia and the United Kingdom. And then you could look at, you know, I mean, sort of secularism of North Korea, which is if they, anyone finds you being religious, they line you up against the wall and blow your head off. So, you know, there's a wide range of secularisms around the world and what it looks like. And you've, I guess people struggle to find the one that works in their context and creates a society where religion is not this sort of oppressive force on people who don't want it, don't want that religion or don't want any religion, but also a society where, as George Washington quoted from scripture when talking to the Jews, uh, I think in Massachusetts, where everyone can sit in their own vine and fig tree and no one will make them afraid. That's what we should do. That kind of settlement is what we should be aiming for. And I think we need more politicians saying, look, we're not going to privilege any particular religion. Uh, we will respect our Judeo-Christian heritage, which has, you know, helped us get where we are. But, you know, we, we need to be a land of all faiths and none where everyone can sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one makes them afraid. 
Hey everyone, if you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. So you outline near the end of your book, different culture war strategies. Some of them are familiar with with people. There's the idea of separatism, which is sort of the Anabaptist Amish tradition where we sort of stay separate from society and you become your own community and you're out there, you're an example. People can look over and see that you're doing something different. There are a handful of others. There's the Benedict option, faithful presence. You could be an activist, which is, you know, what a lot of like woke progressive leftist, left Christian are kind of doing. And even, you know, the Jerry Falwells, you know, that kind of, Mm. you know, direction. You have something that you're calling the Thessalonian strategy. And as I was reading your book, I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is like yet another approach that I find that I'm pretty much in alignment with. Describe that for us. And then the one thing that I have a question about is it does seem closely aligned to the faithful present strategy, which is, I think, you know, a lot of people are familiar with that, but maybe it is the most similar to it in your mind, or maybe it's radically different. But it felt the same when I was reading sort of how you were spelling things out. Yeah, well, let me contrast it with the two approaches. The Benedict Option by um, popular Jenish Rod Dreher says, look, you know, let's not put all our eggs in the baskets of political involvement, okay? So let's just simply create our own Christian counterculture. Now, he doesn't mean completely withdraw from the world or physically withdraw. Everyone just kind of sell their house. Yeah. Yeah. And and big some sort of Christian Christian you know commune, but he says, look, you know, create your own institutions, create your own book clubs, create your own sort of things like that. The problem is, I can tell you from Australia, and I think also based on certain things in Canada and even a little bit in the United Kingdom, is that there is nowhere you can withdraw to that some militant progressives will not come looking for you. There is no place you can retreat through. There is no. Kind of like, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of like pay, play Tiggy. And if you can hold the fence, you're safe, you're bar. There is no bar. Let me give you a good example of that. Elizabeth Warren was um, tweeting this week that Christian crisis pregnancy centers should be shut down or words to that effect. So, I mean, you, you can't say you, we're just going to do our own little thing in the corner because more militant. They will come for you. We will come. So there is no place to retreat. And um, according to uh, oral tradition from... Um, Stanley Howris, um, when he visited Melbourne, he was, I think he was asked, should Christians retreat from the public square? And he said, we can't. These godless bastards have us surrounded. There's, no, there's nowhere to retreat to, okay? In his somewhat classic Texas vulgarity. 
And I think that's true. There are some more predatory and punitive forms of progressive politics that simply believe that religious communities, maybe the ones who are associated with white nationalism, but they all get painted with that brush, are effectively enemies of the state. There is nowhere to withdraw to. So that's why I think the Benedict option, it works if you've got a, if you have a more benign place and you can do that. Same with Fest Faithful Presence. Say, look, we're not going to do everything activist. Just, you know, sit back and cultivate the disciplines of Christian piety. Okay, which is fine when you have a far more benign context. But you cannot do that if you're living somewhere like the Soviet Union, or if you're in living somewhere like, you know, it's gone now, but you no, know, something like that. Or if you're living in somewhere like China. Or, you know, wherever you are in the world, if there is a more predatory apparatus that wants to bring everyone into conformity with like a progressive religion or a state orthodoxy, you can't do faithful presence because whatever presence you have will be regarded as a crime against the state. Now, I'm not, I'm not wanting to catastrophize too much, sure. but I, I am seeing um, progressive governments attempt to court a adversarial relationship with religious communities precisely because it pleases the media elites and largely the rich, white, inner-city progressives, okay? So, you know, people who have a neck tattoo and and like cannabis-flavoured tofu, they're trying to please and ingratiate that section of the community and taking punitive actions against Catholics. You know, you can't can't destroy capitalism unless you take pot shots at the Jews. I mean, those sorts of people is what I'm I'm worried about. So I don't think Benedict optional faithful presence is going to cut it. And if you do have something that is a little bit more pernicious and a little bit more adversarial in how it relates to church, church or religious communities, then you're going to need a kind of resistance, okay? And this is what I'm talking about. And, and the Thessalonian option comes from the idea that the, when the apostle Paul and his entourage arrived in Thessalonica, people were complaining, oh, great, this really weird bunch of, of Jesus freaks has, has arrived here and everywhere they go, they turn the world upside down. And that's what I think we need to do. We need to be not passive. We need to actively turn the world upside down, which historically Christians have, okay? We're the ones who ended slavery. William Wilberforce wasn't the French Revolution. You know, the Jacobins, they were too busy killing the Girondins. Uh, They did not set the slaves on Haiti free, okay? It wasn't the French Revolutions. It was the happy, clappy evangelicals like William Wilberforce. It was the abolitionists in New York and Massachusetts, the evangelicals who led that. We have turned the world upside down and we need to keep doing that. Where government has failed, we need to enter and do better. We don't need to um, try to be adversarial ourselves in the sense of, you know, we're, we're here to bring down the government. You know, we don't want to go around yelling, you know, six semper tyrannis against every time someone gets elected, we don't like them. Sure. Or anything like that. But we've got to build an alternative society and we've also got to build up certain forms of resistance to the ideologies and the praxis that treat religious, all religious communities, not just our own. This includes Muslims, Jews, Hindus, whoever it is. We've got to be willing to stand with all religious communities and forming an a, a ecumenical alliance, in some cases, even an interfaith alliance to protect the freedom of religion against anyone who would encroach upon it for any reason. I list several things we need to do towards that end. So, I'm a big fan of planning on worst case scenario. I, I used to work in, in military intelligence and you always plan for, you know, most likely scenario and worst case scenario. This is why whenever I go through US customs, I always take a copy of the US immigration regulations with me because a couple of times I found myself in a in a room with some Guatemalan drug mules um, 
and having to say, no, I actually, I actually am allowed to be here. I've got the visa regulations. You, you, you've got to plan for worst case scenario and, gotcha. um, and, and be prepared like a good Boy Scout. And if there is going to be a more adversarial settlement between church and state, you've got to be willing to resist in a Christian way that will be effective. So you talk about turning the world upside down in this Thessalonian option. And I can imagine that someone like Rod Dreher is saying, well, that's kind of what we're trying to do by creating alternatives. What do you mean by turning the world upside down? I mean, you mentioned a couple things like ending slavery and things like that. But in the everyday option for me, I'm not going to overturn some egregious social political issue. How would somebody like Wilberforce even do that without being politically engaged in some fashion? So do you have any sort of like maybe grassroots type of suggestions on what does it mean for individuals and churches to turn the world upside down? Well, I go through a whole bunch of options ranging from, you know, focusing on consensual Christianity or, you know, mere Christianity. So, you know, we don't have to fight with the 12 different types of Presbyterians we have in the United States. We can make common cause on the virtue of of religious liberty. We can even work with Muslim and, and Jewish organizations on that type of thing. We can also do things, simply teaching the faith can be an act of defiance. And I would even say to quote, I'm a big big George Orwell fan. And, you know, sometimes common sense is the heresy of all heresies. Or when you're living under lies, telling the truth can be considered a hate crime. You know, that type of thing. So we need to keep telling the truth. Now, the, the fact of the matter is there is a paradox here when it comes to church state relationships that I have not completely figured out myself. And, and here's the idea. People want to avoid a Constantinian idea where we're going to have a Christian emperor who will impose Christianity on the masses, okay? So that's like a theocracy. It's called the Constantinian option. And people say, look, instead, rather than have a Constantinian option, we need to be the prophet on the margins of the society, speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to do that. We need to be more like the Martin Luther King, you know, speaking truth to power, something like that. Yeah. The problem is with that, what happens when the power listens? What happens when the political powers actually heed the word of the prophet? Yeah. And what happens when the powers say, look, how do we implement that vision you're talking about us? Could you be my deputy? Could you endorse some people for me to put into positions of uh, authority to, to put into practice? Yeah. Which means you're then stuck in a kind of vicious cycle going from Constantinian into, you know, profit on the margins to Constantinian, back to profit on the mark. And this is sort of, and I, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't figured out how to get out of that loop and what the solution is. But I think part of the solution is a healthy, generous secularism where you can have a religious voice in our politics without the religious domination of our politics. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to respond and say, well, the answer is in part what you're offering, which is we need to have an embrace of secularism so that we don't ruin Christianity by making it seize power. Because, you know, a lot of times when people want to point to the, the, the horrific things in the church, it's often because they had state power throughout history. It's not, I mean, I can't say I'm not a historian, but like, those are the prominent things that people think of is that the church has state power when it has the sword and it isn't just bearing the cross, then it's going to commit violence. You know, the, what happens when Caesar listens to the prophet? That is a very important question. And yeah, exactly. For me, I've heard people, I don't know if N.T. Wright has sort of said this specifically or if it's, or, or if I've heard him sort of have conversations with people about it, but like what happens when you want to influence the state and it says, you know, God owns all things, God is, you know, making all things new and that also means governments and things like that. And it's like, well, hang on, 
if you're saying to a government, if the government is sort of having a come to Jesus moment, whatever that means, you don't automatically be like, all right, yay, theocracy, because it, it came to Jesus. Like, you're right, there is a paradox there. And I would often say, it's like, you know, if a pimp comes to Jesus, he's not going to pimp in a Christian way, right? Yeah. So there are certain elements of the state that are going to simply need to go away yeah. and sort of transition to something that is more secular in, in the way you're putting it and also more Christian because it's, it's based on liberty, freedom, ind- individual cooperation with others. Yeah, I think that's, and that's exactly the paradox and that it's kind of like you want the, the government to be Christian enough that it reflects Christian values but not too Christian that it becomes a, an oppressive force on different types of Christianity or on non-Christians. And this is, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of like the idea of us having Christian principles. I mean, that's why we have things like, you know, um, public schools, we have um, healthcare, we have a justice system that's justice for all, not just justice for the rich and powerful. So, they're, they're, I mean, our whole society is, Western society is, is premised on Christian values. Yeah. And here's the other thing, even some of our progressive values are types of Christian values, but we're just kind of, you know, weighing things up together. I mean, take the take the abortion debate. Um, I think, you know, defending the voiceless and vulnerable is a Christian view, but also saying women should have, you know, you know, control over their own bodies. I mean, that's also a good thing. I mean, women should not rely on men telling them, you know, how, you know, are they allowed to wear makeup? What can they wear? You know, being dominated by men. And this is the debate in our Christian civilization. Uh, we're having in-house Christian debates, but only one side of the debate is explicitly aware that they're arguing Christian currency. Mm. Uh, and this is a point I learned from, from uh, the English author Tom Holland. He says, our culture wars is we're both arguing about Christian things with Christian language and Christian currency, but only one side of the debate is aware that this is an in-house Christian debate. Um, the, the political left thinks they're they're just simply the representatives of a sort of you know French atheism or something like that, where many of our progressive values are in fact in fact very Christian. Yeah, and we're just trying to figure out a way to well you know when these when two good things conflict, um, how do we balance them? You know, and you know for example, um, you know LGBT people should not be su- subject to violence, harassment, or dis- you know discrimination that type of thing. But, you know, by the same token, um, Christians and various uh, uh, religious communities have argued marriages between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all relationships. So how do you defend, you know, people who have been marginalised and treated as social lepers and pariahs uh, with this, you know, um, religious view of marriage? How do you balance the two of them? These are two Christian things we're trying to balance together, but only one side of the debate is is arguing that their position is Christian. Um, the other side of the debate is trying to say that their position has nothing to do with religion at all. So that's that's part of that's part of the debates we're having. I think in, in all of Western civilizations, we're still coming to grips with our Christian heritage, what it means, and how we live it out. Are you inherently optimistic or pessimistic? I'm pessimistic. I am. I am, like I said, I'm I'm the guy who carries the immigration regulations with him when I go through US customs. Because if I'm if I'm meant to be teaching at a Christian college or something, and the guy says, Well, your visa doesn't say you can do that, I says, Well, I don't need it because I've got a B2 visa. And he says, Well, I don't think so. And I says, Well, check this out, brah. And I, you know, I whip out the regulation. So I I am pessimistic. And my my one of my fears is that we could end up with um, a white Christian nationalism. I mean, imagine, I mean, consider this, imagine if um, the January 6th riot was successful and Mike Pence got hung. I'm genuinely worried like something that could happen 
um, in the States. I'm also worried that we're going to end up something that's like a, a, as a cross between the Third Re- French Republic and the Soviet Union. The, uh, the, third repen- the Third French Republic, you know, in the early 20th century was militantly anti-Catholic, militantly anti-Semitic. And then, of course, you've got the regulation um, and the sort of um, government tyranny of the Soviet Union. Imagine if you got something halfway between those two things, not quite the Soviet Union, but worse than the Third French Republic. Mm. You know, I'm worried that we're going to get something like that because um, people say that's the only way to stop this sort of, you know, um, uh, this sort of, you know, Christian, white Christian nationalism. We've got to have, you know, a, a government that regulates as much as religion. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up people, you know, running around with um, um, M- AK- with um, AR-15s and crosses in Congress or something like that. <laughs> well, I, I hope you're wrong, and I'm sure you kind of hope you're wrong, too, about the pessimism part. So I want to be respectful of your time. And as we wrap up, do you want to share with people where they can find you and what, what's on the horizon for you? I mean, are you working on this book? Are you working on a book that deals with the paradox that you just described? Or is that more in the far future? What's next for you and where can people find you online? Uh, well, people can find me online on Twitter at mbird12. Also have a newsletter, michaelfbird.substack.com and I have a YouTube channel called Early Christian History. Yeah, things I'm working on, I'm kind of taking a break from the political space and just doing some more mundane biblical scholar stuff. Currently got a book coming out on Christology in the ancient world. I mean, if Jesus is God, what does it mean to call someone a God in antiquity? Mm. And I'm also working on a little uh, volume, which is an introduction to Luke Acts called A Bird's Eye View of Luke Acts, uh, pun intended. So yeah, they're the things that are going on in, in my life uh, at the moment. Uh, maybe one day I'll go back to try to resolve that paradox between um, Constantine and the um, the prophetic voice on the margins. If I figure it out, I promise I'll uh, get back to you and yeah. share my ideas with you. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Is this uh, bird's eye view like the start of some new series that might take flight? Well, I've already done I've already done one volume called a bird's eye view of Paul. Ah, okay. Um, that that was. Well, here's a funny story. That was the title of the book in the United Kingdom. In America, they changed it to Introducing Paul, and they changed it because they were worried American readers might think the book had something to do with fish fingers, or as you would call them, fish sticks. You, you were, you know, you know, birds, bird's eye fish sticks, the brand. No, I didn't. That's see that I wouldn't have put that together. Jeez. Well, there is a, there is a brand of fish sticks called called bird's eye fish sticks. And the American publisher, who will remain um, nameless, into <laughs> Vastic Press, um, <laughs> decided to rename the book Introducing Paul because they were worried that American readers might think that the words bird's eye, it had something to do with frozen food in your shopping aisle. All right. All right. Well, anyway, hopefully we'll get we'll get the right title maybe in the next one in the US here. Well, Michael, I appreciate you uh, joining me to talk about this important topic. I appreciate the contribution you've made and I hope our listeners can gain something from this conversation, of course, and then of course uh, from getting your book as well. So thank you. Okay, thank you very much. It's great to talk to you, one, and I look forward to uh, my libertarian reveal party. Uh, <laughs> just just send me the fashion instructions. Just note, I don't, I don't wear hemp. Hemp's a great fabric, but I don't wear hemp. But let, <laughs> but let me know some fashion tips for my libertarian right. reveal party. I really, I really do look forward to this. All right, we'll do. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast.